Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 90, recorded here on November 12th, 2023. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice. So as I say each and every week, please do your own homework. Well, we got a lot of news to go through this week. Uh, but first, we'll start with the market update and outlook. Uh, stocks rebounded strongly on Friday, recovering the ground lost in the previous session as Treasury yields stabilized. Friday's rally came a day after the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell threw cold water on the market, saying higher interest rates might still be needed to tame inflation. But investors jumped back in, reclaiming the notion that U.S. rates have peaked which had sparked the rally in risky assets that had extended through eight sessions until Thursday. The tech-heavy index was uh, buoyed by chip stocks amid a report that a Chinese artificial intelligence startup had bought enough of NVIDIA's chips before U.S. export curbs kicked in. Friday's snapback was enough to lift the three major market averages for a second consecutive week of gains, with the NASDAQ composite jumping 2.4% for the week. Uh, the S&P 500 advancing 1.3%, and the Dow Jones adding 0.7%. Looking ahead, the Consumer Price Index report for October will be a key event next week as investors look for direction with interest rates, especially after the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said at an International Monetary Fund conference that, by the way, was interrupted by protesters. And then he said, uh, like he had a hot mic and he said, just shut the fucking door. <laughs> it's like all over social media. It's pretty hilarious. Anyway, uh, he said uh, that the Fed would not hesitate to tighten monetary policy if the data supported a hike. While markets are pricing in less than 20% probability of a December rate increase, a stronger-than-expected CPI report or hot retail sales print could reset expectations, weighing in on the wild card. Uh, let's see, one analyst here, Dan Victor, thinks that CPI could surprise on the low side. President Biden's meeting in the middle week with China leader Xi Jinping will also be closely watched by investors in the tech sector. The earnings calendar for the week ahead includes reports from retail giants Walmart, Target, Home Depot, while investor events scheduled for DraftKings, Roblox, and Guidewire software have the potential to jolt those shares for those of you that like to gamble. Uh, so jumping into the Bitcoin news, first article here is from Bitcoin.com. This was updated yesterday. Articles entitled U.S. Lawmaker, Crypto is Not the Problem, Bad Actors That Exist in Every Industry Are. U.S. Senator Cynthia Lummis, who is a Republican from Wyoming and also a big Bitcoin advocate, defended crypto in response to an article on Forbes about how misinformation on Hamas and crypto fooled nearly 20% of Congress. Crypto accounts for less than 1% of all illicit finance activity and would be even less if we created a regulatory structure to allow the crypto industry to operate in America 
Instead of unregulated foreign markets, the senator from Wyoming wrote on social media platform X Friday, she stressed, crypto is not the problem. Bad actors that exist in every industry are. Recently, several news outlets reported that Hamas had raised millions of dollars in cryptocurrency. However, blockchain analytics firm Elliptic has debunked the report, stating there is no evidence to suggest that crypto fundraising has raised anything close to this amount and data provided by Elliptic and others has been misinterpreted. Despite Elliptic's efforts to set the record straight, these reports prompted 100 U.S. lawmakers, including our good friend Senator Elizabeth Warren, to push the Biden administration to address crypto finance terrorism. This week, U.S. Deputy Secretary of the Treasury Wally Adeyamo said the Biden administration is seeking more tools to combat the illicit use of crypto. He emphasized that the attack on Israel has brought an increased focus on the illicit financial use of digital assets. Nonetheless, he admitted that crypto is not a major source of funding for terrorist groups. I wonder what is. Hmm. Oh, dollars. Yeah, and euros. Mm-hmm. And other fiat currencies, I'm sure. In February, blockchain analytics firm Chainalysis published a report showing that crime as a share of all crypto activity is still trending downwards. Moreover, the firm stated overall illicit activity in cryptocurrency remains a small share of total volume at less than 1%. So uh, my thought is they're just uh, using this to close all the exits and uh, crack down on um, freedom. Next article is also from Bitcoin.com. Uh, this was updated three days ago. Uh, articles entitled House Approves Amendment to Limit SEC's Crypto Enforcement Authority. The U.S. House of Representatives approved an amendment by Congressman Tom Emmer to limit the authority of the United States Securities and Exchange Commission on Wednesday. Emmer's amendment to H.R. 4664, the Financial Services and General Government Appropriations Act of 2024 ensures none of the funds made available by this act may be used by the Securities and Exchange Commission to carry out an enforcement action related to a crypto asset transaction. The congressman explained on social media platform X Wednesday, my amendment prohibits the SEC from using taxpayer-funded resources to pursue enforcement actions against the digital asset industry until Congress passes legislation that authorizes regulatory enforcement jurisdiction. Criticizing SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, the lawmaker wrote, Gary Gensler is, an, is as ineffective as he is incompetent. Fortunately, my, nonpart, my nonpartisan appropriations amendment to rein in SEC enforcement abuses against the digital asset industry passed the House today with no opposition. Congress will hold unelected bureaucrats accountable. Well, they'll have to get that through the Senate, too, and get the president to sign it. And, well, good luck with that. But Gary's making the lawyers rich, um, suing all these guys, that's for sure. Two other crypto-related amendments to the Financial Services and General Government Appropriations Act of 2024 were also adopted on Wednesday. One was an amendment by Congressman Warren Davidson that ensures no funds may be used by the Department of the Treasury to design or develop a central bank digital currency or establishing United States central bank digital currency as legal tender. The other amendment was by Congressman Alex Mooney, which prohibits funding for the CBDC 
working group led by the Department of the Treasury. Several U.S. lawmakers have criticized Gensler for his enforcement-centric approach to regulating the crypto industry. Congressman Davidson has introduced legislation to remove Gensler as the chair of the SEC. Emmer slammed Gensler in September, stating, it's clear that you're working to consolidate your own power, even though it means crushing opportunities for everyday Americans and, frankly, the financial future of this country. Um, so that's what's happening in Washington. Uh, next article is from CNBC. This was published on November 8th. Articles entitled SEC Chair Gensler says rebooted FTX run by XNYSE chief is possible if, quote, done within the law. Oh, boy. Uh, revived FTX could work if a new leadership does so with a clear understanding of the law, <laughs> which, of course, everybody understands the law, which is why the SEC is suing everyone. SEC Chair Gary Gensler told CNBC on the sidelines of DC FinTech Week. Gensler was referring to reports that Tom Farley, a former president of the New York Stock Exchange, is among a short list of three bidders vying to buy what remains of the bankrupt crypto exchange. Farley launched his own digital asset exchange in May called Bullish, which is reportedly one of the final contenders in the bankruptcy auction. If Tom or anybody else wanted to be in this field, I would say do it within the law, Gensler said on Wednesday. Build the trust of investors in what you're doing and ensure that you're doing the proper disclosures and also that you're not commingling all these functions, trading against your customers or using the crypto assets for your own purposes. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried was found guilty last week. We talked about this in last week's podcast on all seven criminal counts against him, including fraud and money laundering charges. His exchange, which filed for bankruptcy a year ago, was funneling customer money to sister hedge fund Alameda Research, according to the charges. Alameda was a market maker for the FTX exchange and was given privileges such as a $65 billion, yes, that's right, billion-dollar line of credit requiring no collateral. Unlike other customers on the platform, Alameda was also granted the unique ability to go negative in its trading bets without having its positions liquidated. We would never let the New York Stock Exchange also operate a hedge fund and trade against their members or trade against customers in the market, said Gensler. FTX and Alameda were supposed to be separated by a firewall, but the evidence presented in the month-long trial made clear how cozy they were in practice. FTX and Alameda had an extremely problematic relationship, Castle Island Ventures' Nick Carter told CNBC. Bankman-Fried operated both an exchange and a prop shop, which is super unorthodox and just not really allowed in actually regulated capital markets. Separate to the criminal charges, the SEC and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission brought civil suits against FTX. The SEC in December accused Bankman-Fried of running nothing less than a brazen years-long fraud from the start. Gensler said that when it comes to considering new rules regulating the industry, existing securities laws are very robust and strong. They just need to be enforced. There's nothing about crypto that's incompatible with securities laws, he said. You've got a lot of worth worldwide actors that are currently not complying with these time-tested laws. FTX was based in the Bahamas and used mostly by customers outside the U.S., although it had a small American affiliate. Crypto exchange Binance is under fire from U.S. regulators, even though it operates in international business. 
The SEC and CFTC have both brought charges against Binance, alleging the company and founder Changpeng Zhao have worked to subvert their own controls to let high net worth U.S. investors and customers continue trading on its unregulated international exchange. Think about how many actors in this space are not complying right now with international sanctions and money laundering laws and are using crypto for nefarious or bad actions, Gensler said, without naming companies or individuals. The SEC has recently suffered a few interim losses in the courts, including to Ripple over the $1.3 billion the company raised in what the SEC called an unregistered securities offering, as well as to Grayscale relating to the firm's application to convert its Bitcoin trust into a spot Bitcoin exchange-traded fund. Gensler said that over the last six years, the SEC has either brought or settled 150 cases in crypto. One of its legal spats is with Coinbase, a publicly traded crypto exchange in the U.S. that's threatening to leave the country over regulatory constraints. Gensler said companies here have to obey the law, though he avoided references to specific cases. If it's a non-compliant fraudster, why would we want them in our markets, he said. Uh, so, yeah, if FTX uh, has a second life, uh, I certainly wouldn't be dealing with them. Um, uh, and uh, I wouldn't be buying any shit coins either. So uh, I'd rather work with Bitcoin-only companies and uh, just buy and self-cut as custody and uh, let the gamblers uh, get wrecked. Uh, next article, by the way, I, I'll post links to all these articles in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself. Next article is from Cointelegraph. Um, an article was, uh, let's see, updated yesterday. Bitcoiners pitch draft bill to preserve blockchain and decentralization in Argentina. So a little international uh, legis uh, legislative action. Non-government organization Bitcoin Argentina presented a draft bill proposing to regulate the cryptocurrency market in a way that preserves decentralization and strengthens public trust. The proposed legal framework was pitched by Bitcoin Argentina's president, Ricardo Mihura, at El, uh, La BitConf uh, 2023 in Argentina's capital, Buenos Aires, on November 10th. Bitcoin Argentina previously dismissed the idea that the industry needed to be regulated. However, the Bitcoin advocates now argue it is necessary to not only preserve blockchain, but also bad actors accountable to the fullest extent of the law. We have always rejected attempts to regulate the crypto industry, but this time we set ourselves the goal of giving a positive response with only two purposes, preserving decentralization and protecting savings and public trust, Mihura added. We cannot close our eyes to the number of dishonest actors and projects that circulate with the blockchain brand. The first article of the legal framework focuses on separating cryptocurrency platforms and service providers into three categories to ascertain property rights, decentralized, local centralized, or willing to dialogue with authorities, and global centralized. Platforms that fall into one of the two centralized categories would be allowed to operate freely but its customers would be granted the broadest possible judicial protection guaranteeing the right to claim damages in the event of a company downfall. It is understood that Argentina's judiciary will not intervene on failures from decentralized platforms. Courts will decide whether or not a cryptocurrency platform is sufficiently decentralized when resolving claims put forward by allegedly injured customers. 
Mihura stressed that imposing an outright ban on cryptocurrencies, which some governments have tried to do, simply wouldn't work given the global nature of blockchain. Not even the United States can effectively prohibit the operation of the unlicensed crypto economy. Argentina has no possibility of prohibiting its residents from operating in global environments. So we believe that it does not make sense to propose a top-down ban, and we choose to propose the best the law can offer to its citizens. This includes those directly responsible and all those who profit in the marketing chain of a fraud until the final victim, Mihura added. Blockchain Argentina's proposed bill comes one week ahead of Argentina's presidential runoff election between Sergio Massa, the country's economy minister, <laughs> the guy that basically got them into hyperinflation, and Javier Malay, an economist turned politician who wants to abolish Argentina's central bank and adopt the United States dollar. It's also pretty pretty fond of Bitcoin as well. Uh, really, he's he's a libertarian, so he thinks you know let the market decide what the best uh, currency is, um, which is really how things should be. Argentina is currently battling an inflation crisis. Over the last twelve months, the country has recorded the fourth largest annual inflation rate in the world at one hundred twenty one point seven percent, which is terrible. Uh, so I guess so. it'll be interesting to see how this goes. I guess uh, they're just trying to do an end run to avoid an outright ban on, on Bitcoin cryptocurrency by proposing, uh, you know, proactively proposing legislation. Um, so, you know, maybe that'll work. But in the end, uh, nobody can really stop you from using Bitcoin. All they can really do is stop the on-ramps and the off-ramps. But Bitcoin, unlike gold, can function as a currency. And so if you have a lightning wallet, you can move some Bitcoin into that and you can buy and sell stuff without anybody's permission. So there. Uh, next article is uh, kind of an interesting one on Bitcoin education that I thought was worth going into. This is from Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, this was posted on November 7th, Exploring Bitcoin in the University, Preparing a Foundation for Widespread Adoption. Uh, this is by a guy by the name of Stan Reeves. So let's see what he has to say. The unexpected message I got from a student was simple enough. Any chance you're doing any sort of independent study regarding crypto or anything of that nature? I had no intention of teaching a course on crypto, but I'd been thinking of offering a course on Bitcoin. This was the prompt I needed. As a university engineering educator and a Bitcoiner, I'm acutely aware that education about Bitcoin is crucial to the full realization of its potential. And just as a sidebar, I totally agree with that. In fact, you know, I never tell people to buy Bitcoin. I only tell people to study it. And then if they're interested in it still, then, you know, I'm happy to help them. <clears throat> decide, you know, or find ways to to um, buy and, and self-custody. But the, the key is education. Anyway, uh, it goes on to say the intrinsic properties of Bitcoin can make it a sound foundation for a new monetary system. However, it will have to grow significantly in the emergent property of wide acceptance before it can challenge the status quo. Acceptance will only grow with education. Bitcoin is still new and unfamiliar to con and confusing to most people. We need to find curious individuals who will put in the work to understand it and then pass along their understanding and their confidence to others in their circle of trust. 
As I was thinking about the student's request and the paramount importance of Bitcoin education, I considered whether I should offer a course on Bitcoin. What better way to educate people about Bitcoin than to have them as a captive audience for an entire semester with skin in the game and tuition and a grade on the line? I put out some feelers among other students and got a positive reception. I began to look for course models. In the process, I made a surprising discovery. While a large number of courses at major universities cover Bitcoin, most don't focus on Bitcoin. The courses are often listed as Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and treat Bitcoin as just another crypto. Bitcoin and blockchain courses address blockchain abstracted from Bitcoin as the innovation that really matters. Other courses, like the course developed by Korok Ray at Texas A&M, explore in some depth the technical aspects of Bitcoin and require programming as a significant part of the experience. This approach can be valuable for technically-minded students, but it may not attract those that aren't motivated to code. The only courses I found that were Bitcoin-specific but not primarily technical were the following. The Philosophy and Economics of Bitcoin, taught by Andrew Bailey, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Yale. Uh, Bitcoin and the Future of Money, taught by Craig Warmke, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northern Illinois University. Bitcoin and Digital Assets, taught by Nick Batia, Adjunct Professor of Finance and Business Economics at the University of Southern California. Um, professor says, Professor Ray is working on a more general course for business students now. Clearly a general course specified specifically organized around Bitcoin is a massive need in the university. I chose to offer a course that was not primarily technical, but focused specifically on Bitcoin. I called it Exploring Bitcoin. I discussed other crypto projects, but partly in order to make a sharp distinction between Bitcoin and crypto. I wanted students to understand that Bitcoin is a potentially world-shaping innovation. While some crypto projects may have value for functions other than money, they shouldn't be put in the same level as Bitcoin and don't deserve the same level of attention. I argued that a layered approach to building capabilities on Bitcoin makes engineering sense. I used Lightning, Rootstock, and Liquid as examples of efforts that are doing just that. It is not sound engineering practice to try to build protocols that do everything all at once. My course covered the technical and engineering details on an accessible level, but it put just as much focus on the economic, financial, and social aspects of Bitcoin. I deliberately structured the course so that students from any major could take the course without prerequisites. I wanted the appeal to be broad as possible. Bitcoin is for everyone. I got a little pushback about my decision to focus on Bitcoin. The students were broadly curious about crypto, but generally accepted my arguments about the priority of Bitcoin. Others questioned how a focus on Bitcoin reflected academic values like research, analysis, and experimentation. My response was that Bitcoin is the original cryptocurrency. It is the genesis of absolute scarcity. It solves the foundational problems of money. It has a market cap equal to all other crypto assets combined and a network effect that dwarfs the others. And it makes sense to study the most important thing in depth rather than to superficially cover a thousand far less important things. I believe this approach was successful in maintaining the academic values of challenging students to think, advocating time-tested design principles, and focusing on the fundamental issues. One student had this to say after the course was over. I thought I knew a lot about Bitcoin before the course, but this course humbled me and challenged some of my perspectives. Most importantly, this class helped me learn 
why Bitcoin should be separated from other crypto, which is a message I plan to carry as I go on telling others about Bitcoin. Because my goal was to accommodate a wide variety of students and interests, I required each of them to design and execute a significant term-length individual project. The project could involve hardware, software, a case study, or a research paper. By giving them the flexibility to choose a topic with my approval, the course adapted to their individual interests, strengths, and career direction. Topics ranged from research on challenges in Bitcoin education to a hardware implementation of a simple mining rig. The final assignment required students to pull from everything they learned in the course to create an informative and persuasive presentation about Bitcoin. They were to make their best use case for why everyone should, or should not, if that was their conclusion, care about Bitcoin and present it to at least three people. I'm happy to report that all the students chose to do a pro-Bitcoin presentation. Student approaches to this were quite inventive. One student asked all his hearers to pull out their phones, set up an account on an exchange, and buy $10 of Bitcoin. He walked them through the process, and they all walked away holding a little Bitcoin, now with skin in the game and a reason to learn more about Bitcoin. A few students also discovered, to their dismay, that some of their hearers were adamantly opposed to Bitcoin, usually to crypto, and the students' attempts at persuasion did very little to change opinions. Bitcoin education is challenging. I hoped that this experience would be the beginning of a life of learning and effort in educating others about Bitcoin. In the end of the term, over 70% of the students indicated that they plan to find ways to educate others about Bitcoin. Overall, I believe this course was quite effective in educating students about Bitcoin and preparing them to carry that forward in their own decisions and conversations with others. I was able to assess several measures that confirm this claim. To put this data in perspective, almost half the class signed up not because of an interest in Bitcoin, but for the stated reason that it was the only relevant course available. Not a great piece of news for the professor's ego, but it was worthy challenge nonetheless. Only a little over a fourth of the students had ever dabbled in crypto at all. The change in the distribution of interest in Bitcoin technology is depicted below. And he has a chart, uh, percentage before and percentage after, and, uh, and obviously the percentage after uh, uh, grew quite a bit on the scale of one to five. Student feedback in other areas is also revealing as evidenced in the table below. Um, and uh, interest in Bitcoin technology uh, increased, interest in the economics of Bitcoin increased, um, interest in the social and political impact of Bitcoin increased, interest in the Bitcoin as a savings or investment increased, Bitcoin versus crypto um, distinction uh, uh, awareness increased, and confidence in Bitcoin as a monetary asset uh, also increased. Students were engaged in every aspect of Bitcoin that we covered. They began fairly neutral on every topic area that I surveyed, but they landed between high and very high in terms of interest in every topic. They asked penetrating questions and dug up some of their own answers online. Many times they answered each other's questions. Student feedback made it clear that they wanted assignments to be as hands-on as possible and as early as possible. Uh, one student expressed it this way. Um, the way I approach a problem is typically to find a working solution and then study it and figure out how it works. 
While I required the students to make Bitcoin and Lightning transactions, I didn't require it early. In the future, I will make that a requirement near the very beginning and maybe even offer them some small Bitcoin rewards. This will give them more hands-on context for everything <clears throat> that is discussed subsequently, especially security, the blockchain, mining, and scaling. They will immediately have some Bitcoin to motivate their study, and it will establish a do-your-own-research culture for the course, which is crucial for Bitcoiners to embrace. Uh, so takeaways, the response to the course confirms that Bitcoin education in a university context has a great deal of promise. It underscores a more general strategy that Bitcoiners should employ, use existing channels to teach about Bitcoin. One of my students did his project on the challenges of Bitcoin education, and this principle was one of his key takeaways. We don't have to develop entirely new outlets for Bitcoin education. Many avenues exist already. For example, community colleges are often looking for interesting topics to offer the community in the form of short courses. Some communities and universities have special programs that target retirees with lect guest lectures and popular topics. High schools teaching economics courses may sometimes welcome a guest speaker on a topic like Bitcoin. There are many great resources available for these efforts, such as the My First Bitcoin curriculum. Use your imagination, you'll discover many such opportunities. A few challenges have to be overcome to grow Bitcoin education in a university environment. First, more university professors need to embrace Bitcoin and see the need for Bitcoin education. Those who have the ear of professors should make a special effort to expose them to the transformative nature of Bitcoin. Advocating for Bitcoin is, in an academically rigorous way is important, but a little-known secret is that professors are people, too, and can sometimes be influenced through ordinary conversations with non-academics. That's how it happened for me. Second, Bitcoin is a highly interdisciplinary subject, and that is the truth, and professors from many disciplines will need to embrace the opportunity to teach about Bitcoin. Bitcoin as a class, as a class topic may experience resistance in some departments that are ideologically contentious, such as philosophy or economics. In my area, engineering, the bigger challenge is convincing non-engineering students to take a course that's listed as engineering. That may require engineering professors to sharpen our marketing skills. Third, a Bitcoin course may provoke some academic turf wars due to its interdisciplinary nature. A strong argument needs to be made that Bitcoin does not neatly fit into one department or college. As long as some aspect of the course requires expertise within that department, a case can be made that the course should be taught there by the professor who created the course. I invite other professors who are interested in teaching Bitcoin courses to reach out to me for further discussion. Introducing a Bitcoin course during a bear market may seem like a fool's errand, but having established university courses in place before the next bull run positions the Bitcoin education enterprise for a groundswell of interest. This is the time to work toward that goal. We are on the cusp of a monetary revolution, but it will require education. Bitcoin education in the university offers not only a way to educate students about Bitcoin, it also offers a way to equip these students to become Bitcoin educators for the next generation of adoption. University students are generally curious, energetic, and influential, just the kind of people who can effectively introduce Bitcoin to others. As education around Bitcoin grows, trust will grow, and that will open the door to the widespread adoption of Bitcoin that we're working for. Great article. Uh, excellent. Um, it's just outstanding to see, uh, you know, 
uh, university professor taking this approach and he's totally right. It's very interdisciplinary, um, but it's interesting that he could teach it from an engineering perspective, which um, actually a lot of people that get Bitcoin are also engineers, which is kind of interesting too. Michael Saylor, for example, is an engineer. Um, so anyway, great article. Moving on, uh, next article is from Decrypt. Um, this was posted on November 10th. Articles entitled Bitcoin Ethereum Demand Pushes 2023 Crypto Fund Investment Over $1 Billion. Fresh off Bitcoin's climb past $37,000, CoinShares head of research James Butterfield told Decrypt on Friday that investors have poured over $1.07 billion into digital asset investment products so far this year. The recent activity represents a notable jump from the $847 million in annual inflows that CoinShares relayed Monday. The report covers allocations to products like Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust, uh, Bitwise's 10 Crypto Index Fund. This year is the third largest year on record in terms of just pure inflows, Butterfield said, noting that CoinShares data goes back to 2015. It's just a lot of demand, a lot of interest, and I've not experienced at this level of interest since 2021. The industry weathered a steep drop in digital asset prices last year amid the blow-up of several high-profile firms. At the time, Bitcoin fell as low as $15,649, and inflows were relatively subdued at just $389 million, Butterfield said. However, he believes the recent deluge of inflows is representative of a change in sentiment among investors, especially institutions. When you see very large chunks, then you know institutions really are buying, he said, acknowledging that the source of inflows into investment products like ETFs is typically hard to tell because allocations are anonymous by nature. Anticipation for a spot Bitcoin ETF on Wall Street has been the main driver of Bitcoin's recent rally, analysts say. So far, products associated with crypto's largest coin have seen 1.03 billion in inflows, representing 96% of allocations this year, according to, coin, according to coin shares. There's less of a stigma associated with moving capital into digital asset investments now than in times past, Butterfield said. When you have some of the largest asset managers in the world, like Franklin Templeton and BlackRock, wading deeper into crypto waters. On Thursday, filings with the SEC Securities and Exchange Commission and NASDAQ suggested that BlackRock is laying the groundwork for an Ethereum-based ETF, analysts said. Over the past week, crypto's second-largest coin had increased 16% to around $2,100, according to CoinGecko. At the same time, Ethereum turned deflationary again as activity associated with all coins on the network rose. Since CoinShares report on Monday, annual Outflows associated with Ethereum have decreased by 30 million, shrinking from 107 million to 77 million. Investors will slowly realize Ethereum is the only asset which is deflationary and offers a yield, Butterfield said. It's actually quite different than Bitcoin, more like high yield tech stock. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't. I I don't trust Ethereum because it's it's centralized and they can nobody really knows how many what the max issuance is going to be. And um, I don't know. It's a shit coin. It's just a very big shit coin. So I'd stay away from it. Uh, next article is from Yahoo Finance. So a little 
more mainstream. Uh, this one is from uh, November 10th. UBS allows crypto ETFs for Hong Kong investors with at least US $2 million in assets. UBS Group AG, the largest Swiss wealth manager, will allow wealthy clients on its Hong Kong platform to trade crypto-linked exchange-traded funds from Friday. Three crypto ETFs authorized by the Securities and Futures Commission, Samsung Bitcoin Futures Active ETF, the CSOP Bitcoin Futures ETF, and the CSOP Ether Futures ETF, will be available on UBS Hong Kong. Only clients with over $2 million in investable assets will be able to trade the ETFs through UBS Hong Kong. Rob Stewart, Chief Communications Officer at UBS Asia Pacific, confirmed to forecast. <clears throat> Hong Kong introduced its digital asset regulatory regime on June 1st, allowing licensed crypto trading platforms to serve retail investors. Hong Kong has previously announced its ambitions to become a global crypto hub despite mainland China's ban on crypto trading. However, Hong Kong authorities tightened their regulatory stance toward crypto following a $180 million fraud case at crypto exchange JPEX. Two of Hong Kong's financial regulators issued a joint warning on October 23rd, pointing to the risks of complex virtual asset products on retail investors. They advised intermediaries to only sell such assets to professional investors with a net worth to cover any financial losses. Professional investor status requires a portfolio worth at least 8 million Hong Kong dollars, which is $1.03 million under Hong Kong law. Um, so can't get too excited about futures ETFs, but um, my bet is that Hong Kong's going to be launching uh, uh, physical ETFs, and uh, they might try to get in the game before the U.S. does. So we'll see. have to keep an eye on that. Next article is from Crypto News. This was posted on November 10th. Articles entitled Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy see massive returns on Bitcoin investment crossing the $1.1 billion mark. The price of Bitcoin has risen substantially in recent weeks, pushing the value of MicroStrategy's Bitcoin holdings above $5.8 billion. The rally has resulted in over $1.2 billion in unrealized profit for the company and its CEO, Michael Saylor. MicroStrategy is a business software firm that has made massive investments in Bitcoin over the past few years. According to recent data from Bitcoin Treasuries, the company holds more than 158,000 Bitcoins acquired at a cumulative cost of $4.6 billion, with the price of Bitcoin crossing $37,000 this week. The value of these holdings now stands at approximately $5.88 billion. This means the company has made an unrealized profit of over $1.2 billion on its Bitcoin investment. Unrealized profit refers to gains on investments that have yet to be sold or withdrawn. As the <clears throat> value of MicroStrategy's Bitcoin holdings continues to rise, so does their unrealized profit. MicroStrategy's Bitcoin position is more than 10 times larger than any other public company, the next biggest institutional holder, Marathon Digital, has 13,726 Bitcoins worth approximately $500 million at current prices, highlighting the scale and success of MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor's Bitcoin bet. In September, ahead of Bitcoin's latest surge, MicroStrategy purchased an additional 5,445 Bitcoins for $150 million 
at an average price of 27053 per Bitcoin. The purchase allowed the firm to capitalize on lower prices and increase its holdings before the recent upward price movement. <clears throat> MicroStrategy's Executive Chairman Michael Saylor has been one of the most vocal proponents of Bitcoin among prominent business leaders. He has consistently touted the cryptocurrency and publicly backed its long-term adoption. Under Saylor's direction, MicroStrategy has steadily built its Bitcoin position over time by using company funds as well as proceeds from bond offerings. The firm adopted Bitcoin as its primary treasury asset back in 2020 and has continued investing despite volatility. Bitcoin has seen a boost in recent weeks, partially due to growing optimism around a Bitcoin exchange-traded fund being approved in the United States. Many experts believe the approval of a Bitcoin ETF would spur major Wall Street investment into the cryptocurrency and propel prices higher. There are currently several proposals before the Securities and Exchange Commission. On Wednesday, it was reported by Coindesk that the SEC is in discussions with Grayscale about the potential conversion of its popular Bitcoin trust product into an ETF. While the regulator has rejected applications in the past, the latest development suggests an approval may now be on the horizon. The prospect of a potential approval of Bitcoin spot ETFs, along with Bitcoin's finance supply and growing adoption, has viewed bullish sentiment and lifted prices off their 2022 lows. As a result, MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor now sit on massive Bitcoin gains that may see other companies taking notice in the coming months. All right, that was a nice piece of hopium. Uh, next up here is an opinion piece from Coindesk. Uh, this was posted on November 10th. Call uh, articles by Payal Shah, and it's entitled Getting Ready for Bitcoin's Catalyst. So here comes more hopium. The price of Bitcoin, the world's largest cryptocurrency by market cap, began climbing during the week of October 23rd after spending much of the summer stuck around 26,000. It recently rose above 35,000 to touch its highest level since May 2022. Why is Bitcoin appreciating? Some point to signs that a slate of exchange-traded funds that hold actual Bitcoin, known as spot Bitcoin ETFs, may soon be approved by U.S. regulators. If such approval, if such approval, if granted, will provide investors with additional products to access Bitcoin exposure and may attract participants who may have been sitting on the sidelines. The approval of the futures-based ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF made history in October 2021 as one of the strongest ever ETF launches, amassing more than a billion dollars in assets in just two days and continuing to attract interest. Another popular theory is tied to Bitcoin's upcoming halving. This pre-programmed adjustment to the blockchain cuts in half the reward miners receive for processing transactions and creating new Bitcoin from the current 6.25 to 3.125 Bitcoin per block. This event occurs after 210,000 blocks are mined or about every four years until the maximum supply of 21 million is reached. The next halving, Bitcoin's fourth, is expected to happen by mid-April 2024. In the past, this event and the associated supply reduction has coincided with a strong run-up in Bitcoin's price and could potentially lead to pre- and post-halving volatility. The geopolitical and macro backdrop for the upcoming halving is very different from previous ones, and the availability of regulated, robust, and liquid Bitcoin futures and options 
from CME Group means firms have trusted and tested products to hedge their Bitcoin price risk or gain exposure. <clears throat> Investors who trade in the futures market usually have one of two aims, to either hedge the price of an asset by locking in a future price or to speculate on the price direction of an asset to seek to profit from the ups and downs of futures prices. CME Group, Bitcoin, <clears throat> and micro Bitcoin and futures and options can help investors navigate cryptocurrency market risks and potentially profit from its opportunities. Micro Bitcoin futures traded volume has doubled from uh, looks like 5,900 contracts in September to 11,900 contracts traded in October 2023, while Bitcoin futures witnessed a 38% increase in daily volume to 13,300 contracts over the same period. Cryptocurrency futures bring three main advantages for investors. One, the contract is cash settled in U.S. dollars. There's no need to custody the coin, which removes the risk of having to safely store it. That means you don't need to have a wallet, worry about hackings or insurance. The futures simply track the price of Bitcoin or Ether and settle in U.S. dollars. So by trading cryptocurrency futures instead of the coins themselves, investors can bypass several operational hurdles. They are, two, there are CFTC-regulated contracts. That means they offer several customer protections. For example, your funds are fully segregated and each trade is centrally cleared. CME Group's clearing house becomes the buyer to every seller and the seller to every buyer. This substantially mitigates counterparty risk from the trade. Three, futures make it easier for investors to short. No locate or borrow is necessary to simply sell to gain short exposure. Bitcoin and Ether are no strangers to volatility. While some Investors might embrace that. Others are far more risk-averse. Selling futures contracts could well play a part in their strategy. Investors who like more risk can sell short futures to try and profit from Bitcoin or Ether's downside moves. Other investors, meanwhile, can sell or short futures to hedge the Bitcoin or Ether they already own. This way, they can offset some losses if their crypto portfolio takes a dive. Moreover, futures offer investors more precision to fine-tune exposure and allow them to control a large contract value with a smaller amount of capital. One micro-Bitcoin futures contract, which the ticker says is MBT, is set to one-tenth of a Bitcoin, which is 50 times smaller than a full-size contract, uh, ticker BTC. One micro-Ether futures contract, <laughs> ticker MET, is one-tenth of an Ether, they should have made it METH, uh, which is 500 times smaller than its full-size counterpart, which is ticker ETH. The notional size for MBT is about $3,500, while for MET it's about $200 at current market prices. If you're buying Bitcoin or Ether on a spot exchange, you will need to fully fund the position before you trade. An advantage with futures is that you only need to put down the initial margin requirement or the amount of money you need as collateral to open your trade. Institutional interest in Bitcoin futures has steadily climbed. Open interest, a measure of client demand, hit an all-time high of 20,380 contracts on October 25th, equivalent to 101,900 Bitcoin representing $3.5 billion in notional value. Similarly, the number of large open interest holders of CME Group's Bitcoin futures grew to a record 122 on October 24th, 
LOIH for cryptocurrency futures is defined by the CFTC as an entity that holds at least 25 contracts. This is further proof that institutional investors are warming up to Bitcoin and positioning their portfolios amid renewed optimism. Retail investors, too, seem to have played their part as evidenced by an uptick in futures-based ETFs AUM. The rolling five-day volume in ProShares industry-leading Bitcoin strategy ETF BITO jumped by a staggering 420% to $340 million last year. BITO invests in CME Group Bitcoin futures. Uh, so my advice is stay away from futures. I mean, you know, unless you're a trader, um, just if you you just buy Bitcoin physical, put it in cold storage and save it. Futures are a great way to get wrecked, especially if you don't know what you're doing, because uh, uh, you can get blown out going long or going short. And um, you know, now some of these sophisticated investors might have large positions and they might have an obligation to their investors not to have huge drawdowns, which of course Bitcoin is known for. You know, it could go up 10x and then it can go down 80%. Um, so as a hodler, you don't really care about that because you know over the long haul it's going to keep going up um, due to the scarcity and adoption curve and so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, investment houses, you know, they need to protect their investment. So they'll typically buy futures contracts as a hedge, which is perfectly fine. As long as the counterparty to the hedge doesn't blow up, in which case you just paid for insurance and didn't get any. So, um, but you know, you can certainly see a, a use case there. Okay, which brings us to our last article, uh, which is from the Bitcoin Insider. Uh, articles entitled, why, let me see, this was posted, uh, it doesn't have a date on it, but you can check the link. Why Bitcoin holds the upper hand against CBDCs. When FTX crashed in November 2022, it triggered a multi-billion dollar exodus spree, bringing Bitcoin down 22% in a single day. By the end of the month, the European Central Bank fired an unusual shot across the crypto bow. As Bitcoin's price stabilized, the Central Bank suggested this is Bitcoin's, quote, last gasp before the crypto asset embarks on a road to irrelevance. Interestingly, the ECB's public comment came from a competitive standpoint. The co-author of Bitcoin's Last Stand was Ulrich Binsile, an ECB economist. Binsile authored a paper entitled Central Bank Digital Currency, Financial System Implica Implementa Implications and Control in May 2019. The paper clearly outlined where the monetary system is heading. Um, and then there's a table here with you know benefits, possible further factors or re requirements. And they list, you know, efficient retail payments, overcome use of banknotes for illicit activities, strengthen monetary policy, sovereign money related. Uh, in other words, Bitcoin and CBDCs are heading for a clash, surveillance token versus sovereign money. The world's financial institutions from IMF and BIS to ECB have already established that anonymity is a problem to be solved, so a CBDC token cannot retain the properties of cash in digital form. However, 
Anonymity can also be used for illicit purposes and can undermine AML-CFT measures. Anonymity, therefore, poses a policy trade-off. The more anonymity, the larger the risk of illicit use. Given the programmable nature of CBDC tokens, that illicit use can then be extended ad infinitum. Money as we know it would no longer be a social engineering tool. Case in point, NatWest Bank integrated carbon planner and carbon footprint tracker under the climate change narrative. With further integration of CBDCs, such features could turn overnight from opt-in features to a Chinese-style social credit system. Once a citizen's ID is integrated into a CBDC account, few steps remain to build a new social landscape. For instance, taking advantage of its erected COVID-19 surveillance infrastructure, China can turn off citizens' access to public travel as they try to get their frozen money out of commercial banks. Bank customer Liu, per Reuters, I can't do anything. I can't go anywhere. You're treated as though you're a criminal. It infringes on my human rights. Even without CBDCs, such a scenario played out in Canada during the trucker convoy protests against lockdowns and COVID and vaccine mandates, it's no understatement to say this decade will be a turning point, one in which the nature of money will be fully explored. Will money become a leverage for social planners, or will citizens take advantage of non-governmental money that is truly sovereign? In this rapidly evolving monetary landscape, what role does Bitcoin play? Bitcoin emerges as an elegant marvel of software engineering, the task before it was daunting. How to secure a publicly verifiable accounting of wealth without any governing body? Bitcoin's network architecture archives this, uh, sorry, achieves this permissionless decentralization. Anyone with internet access can become an auditor, a network node that verifies data blocks containing all the transactions. These full nodes contain an entire ledger history comparing one block against the other. At the same time, auditors, or Bitcoin miners, are incentivized with Bitcoin rewards for their proof of work. Most importantly, Bitcoin is grounded in physicality. Miners' computers have to harness their computing power to solve complex cryptographic puzzles when adding new transaction blocks, and that computing power requires energy. At 462 million terahash per second, Bitcoin is the world's largest computing network. Bitcoin hash rate reflects the permissionless participation in securing the world's first public money ledger. For such a network to be compromised, like falsifying block transactions or double spending, the attackers must recalculate unique identifiers, or hash, for Bitcoin transactions of all previously added transaction blocks. By all intents and purposes, attacking Bitcoin's blockchain would be virtually impossible for even large state agents precisely because of Bitcoin's grounding in proof-of-work physicality. Yet this energy cost has made Bitcoin a frequent target. If it were a country, Bitcoin would rank 34th by energy consumption. Is this wasteful? Does it matter if the Bitcoin network already consumes renewable resources or stabilizes existing power grids? Is the cost of securing a public ledger fairly priced? The market certainly seems to perceive it as such. If that weren't the case, we would already have a new kind of Bitcoin where Greenpeace launched the Clean Up Bitcoin campaign. This is an odd approach given that Bitcoin code is open source. For the cost of the media campaign, Greenpeace could have funded Bitcoin's hard fork as a proof-of-stake Bitcoin. Therefore, cleaning it up is a low-energy network. The fact that this failed to occur means that Bitcoin has an intractable first-mover advantage. 
Bitcoin's controversial physicality as an energy-intensive network is the baseline for its market expansion. After all, <clears throat> if anyone could copy or tweak Bitcoin's open source code, where would its value be? The fact that the Bitcoin network uses energy as a scarce resource infers value onto Bitcoin. And the more energy it uses for computing hashes, the more uh, it is difficult to attack it. Note that this is only possible with the first mover advantage. As the first cryptocurrency, Bitcoin has become synonymous with digital money, reaping the benefits from the network effect. This organic branding increased Bitcoin's liquidity pool to $1.2 trillion in November 2021. Although the Federal Reserve's unprecedented money supply increase is largely responsible for this liquidity boost, it showcases the demand for predictable monetary policy. To that end, El Salvador was the first nation to break the psychological barrier by adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. Indicatively, Argentinian president candidate Javier Malay won 30% of votes against the incumbent economy minister Sergio Massa as the enforcer of monetary policies that led Argentina to have 138.3% year-over-year inflation in September. According to Javier Malay, Argentinian presidential candidate, Bitcoin represents money's return to its original maker, the private sector. Money is a private invention. Bitcoin has an algorithm that will, that one day it will reach a certain amount and there is no more. In the meantime, the CBDC deployment in Nigeria, the second largest after China, has been met with adoption failure and social chaos. Moreover, the Central Bank of Nigeria's 300-page CBDC paper openly noted that e-Naira can potentially undermine financial stability, namely that reliance on central banking would make commercial banks obsolete necessitating CBDC limits to prevent bank runs. Banking disintermediation risk is the same concern issued by the UK's House of Lords in January 2022. While a CBDC may provide some advantages, it could present significant challenges for financial stability and the protection of privacy. This is another window in which Bitcoin demand can further expand. However, Bitcoin's primary driver is its monetary predictability, which is sorely lacking within the central banking system. It's no secret that Bitcoin emerged as a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash after 2008 banking bailouts. After all, this message is ingrained in the Bitcoin Genesis block, serving as an indictment of central fractional reserve banking. Central banks have a track record of drastic currency devaluation throughout history, as they arbitrarily tweak money supplies based on government needs. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the dollar's purchasing power declined by 93.7%. This means that $1,594.76 today was worth $100 in 1920, six years after the creation of the Federal Reserve. The relentless devaluation of currency exerts immense pressure on personal wealth, compelling individuals to pursue aggressive investment strategies such as short selling to counteract this insidious form of wealth erosion. Without the dollar's shock-absorbent global reserve currency status, one can only wonder what the debasement would look like. Alongside stocks and commodities, Bitcoin emerged as one currency debasement hedge, limited to 21 million Bitcoin, a certainty enforced by its vast computing network. For comparison, the Federal Reserve balance sheet increased by 290% since Bitcoin launched in January 2009, from 2 trillion to nearly 8 trillion. Nearing the end of 2008, the Fed had under $1 trillion in total assets. This has since increased eightfold 
At the same time, the U.S. government engorged on debt feeding, courtesy of the Fed, having doubled national debt as GDP percentage to nearly 120%. On October 19th, at the New York Economics Club, Fed Chair Jerome Powell admitted that moral hazards in the central banking system created a perilous path. The path we're on is unsustainable, and we'll have to get off that path sooner rather than later. Yet it is exceedingly difficult to conceive a path without warped incentives in the current system. How can any politician promise to fix problems without more money printing and more debt, a debt that could eventually lead to a sovereign debt crisis? If anything, a CBDC deployment would lead to the same monetary policies but with greater granular control of people's funds and spending habits. Unlike any other asset, Bitcoin lacks a governing structure that infuses it with moral hazards. For the first time in monetary history, Bitcoin represents publicly verifiable wealth accounting. In the last three years, the world witnessed the accelerated erosion of purchasing power as governments create money ex nihilo from central banks. The cost has to be paid. Inflation is the only interim cost on the road to the sovereign debt crisis. As debt servicing becomes more unsustainable, central banks will likely resort to inflating away the debt. They could devalue debt realistically by rapidly increasing the money supply and outpacing debt growth. This is the historical window in which Bitcoin could come into play as an alternative, disintermediated from moral hazards, but bound by cryptography, energy, and math. Uh, so a fantastic piece and uh, totally agree with everything that he says. All right. So last, just wanted to mention uh, to check out this week's Substack. Uh, it's entitled Preserving Freedom Through Technology. Now is the time. And I will include a link in the show notes. And if you aren't already a subscriber, please, it's free. Please subscribe to my Substack. Um, my new rabbit hole is privacy. And so I'm going to be doing a lot more on that uh, subject in the future. And with that, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow my Substack, again, at bitcoinfortress.substack.com. And you can follow me on Noster. Uh, I put my NPUB in the show notes, so you can follow me there. And also, if you're not listening on Fountain, you should be because you can earn sats, um, Bitcoin, just for listening to your favorite podcast, which is great. Talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.